0: this morning is Exodus 19 from 1 to 6. um, Exodus 19 from 1 to 6. Okay, so we read as follows. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After After breaking camp at Rephidim, They came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant... You will be my own special possession from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Okay, so first off in this passage we see that God makes three conditional promises to his people Israel. These are, number one, you will be my own special possession from among all the peoples on the earth. Number two, you will be my kingdom of priests. And number three, you will be my holy nation. And it's important to note the conditional nature of these promises God gives to Israel. In other words, God is saying, if you obey me and keep my covenant, then these promises apply. Then you'll be my special possession. Then you'll be my kingdom of priests. Then you'll be my holy nation. The fulfilment of these promises are conditioned on Israel's willingness to obey God and keep his covenant. But on that note though, it's important to note with this first promise, you'll be my own special possession from from all the peoples of the earth, that Israel will always be God's possession in at least some sense, on account of the unconditional nature of the covenant God made with Abraham. Thus, no matter how much idolatry or apostasy Israel would sink into, God would still love them, and they would still be his possession. So what I believe God is saying here in regards to the promise, in regards to this promise in the context of Exodus 19, is that if you obey me and keep my covenant, if you wholly dedicate yourself to me and seek to obey my commands with all your heart, then you will be my special possession in the fullest sense. If Israel was to truly dedicate themselves to God, and truly seek to obey his commands, then they would truly be his special possession, because they would be the people he would have them to be. Thus, Israel will always be God's possession, because God told Abraham, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you, from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Genesis 177 7-8. So God will always be the God of Israel, no matter what Israel does on account of this everlasting covenant. They'll always be his possession. But in the context of this passage in Exodus 19, God is saying, if you truly seek to obey me and dedicate yourself to me, then you will truly be my special possession, because you will be as I would have you to be. And we know that ultimately Israel will not truly be God's possession in the fullest sense until God pours the spirit of grace and supplication upon them, and they mourn for him whom they pierce, like the prophet Zechariah says. Then God will circumcise their hearts that they'll truly want to, and will be able to obey God and keep, and keep the covenants God made with them. This is when Israel will finally be God's special possession in the fullest sense. But it's important to note they'll always be his possession on account of the everlasting covenant God made with them. So anyway, that's sort of our introduction. I sort of wanted to start with that point because we're going to be studying these these covenant promises today. going to be looking at it, but I thought I'd try... Lay out that potentially confusing confusing point right at the beginning. So um, yeah, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. But in particular, this first one that we've already been looking at. We're going to be looking at what it means to be God's possession, what it in the in the fullest sense, and what it and then conversely what it what it means not to be his possession. So yeah, these are the things we'll be looking at today. Okay, so Look at, um, look at chapter 19, verses 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. It says, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special possession from among all the people of the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. Okay, so all the earth belongs to God on account of the fact that he created it. This means that all the people on the earth belong to God as well because he created them. He is their maker, and they're held morally accountable to him. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. But this promise of God declaring Israel will be his possession, his people from among the nations, presupposes that these other nations are not God's possession. They do not belong to God. So we have this situation where God's, everything in the, in, in the earth and in the universe is God's because he created it. It belongs to him. But conversely, God's saying Israel will be my possession. And this shows that these other nations do not belong to him in, in some sense. And so this begs the question again, what does it mean to be God's possession to truly belong to him? So, to understand this, we've got to go right back to the beginning. We've got to go right back to the beginning. Okay, so let's go to uh, Genesis 1, verses 28. Genesis 1, verse 28. It says Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Rain over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay, so this, is, this passage contains God's purpose for man. Before the fall, God made man to take dominion over the earth, to govern it and be stewards over it. Man was to accomplish this purpose of God in right relationship with God, totally dependent on him for guidance, wisdom, and the help he would give. In other words, humanity in the beginning was made in right relationship with God, perfectly acceptable to him, and thus belonging to him and being his possession in the fullest sense. Man was made alive to God and thus made in perfect relationship with him. I guess at this point it, it should be obvious to us that it was through the fall that this changed. Because the fall of man was a rejection of God, and a choosing of the pathway contrary to God's ways. This is why humanity inherited a sinful and depraved nature, because they had chosen sin over God. Instead of being right and accepted and belonging to God, they had chosen to be estranged from God, and by their nature be made unacceptable to Him. Thus they inherited a nature that was bent toward committing evil and rebelling against God's ways from the earliest of ages. Man is born out of fellowship with God, out of his favor, because he is born in the state of sin, with this nature that is bent strongly toward evil and away from God and his ways. Ephesians 2.3 By our very nature, we were subject to God's wrath, just like everyone else. And in Psalm 51 verse 5, David says, For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, it's important to know that this does not mean a person is born guilty of sin before God or in a place where they are accountable before God of sin because when a a baby is born it it has not yet sinned yet it's not sin yet so it's not born in this place of guilt before God guilty of sin but however even though um, however even though man is yeah sorry I lost my place However, it does mean that we're born in a state of rebellion with a nature that is bent toward evil and sin because originally man chose sin and rebellion over right fellowship with God. However, even though man is born in this state of depravity with this nature that is contrary and hostile to God, it is still possible for man to find favor with God. And this is the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brought a lamb as a burnt offering before the Lord. What he was saying was this, This is what I deserve, death because of sin, but God, please accept this lamb's life on my behalf. Therefore, even though Abel was born dead in sin, out of fellowship with God, and with a nature contrary and hostile to God and his ways, he could still choose God and his ways. Through faith and trust and humility and the sacrifice God provided, Abel was accepted by God. And right here we have a hint of what it means to be accepted by God, to belong to him and be his possession. To be accepted by God means for him to accept the sacrifice we offer. We're only accepted by God inasmuch as he accepts the sacrifice offered on our behalf. Therefore, even though Abel was born out of fellowship with God and in a state that naturally led him in rebellion against God, he could still choose to honor God and choose to live according to the way that would please him. And God, in light of Abel's faith and trust and humility and sacrifice, was able to accept Abel and make him right with himself. He found favor with God and he could be counted as his possession. He belonged to God. But Cain refused to do this. He refused to acknowledge how terrible his sinful condition truly was. He wasn't so bad that he needed a substitute to die in his place. He believed that through his own work and effort and what he was able to give God through this, he should be made right with God, should be accepted. So look at Genesis 4 from verses 4 to 7. It says... Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel in his gift, but he did not accept Cain in his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its masters. Okay, so now we can say, now we can see we have two clear pathways. The pathway of Abel, who through faith and humility and the sacrifice God provided, could find favour and acceptance with God, and could live in the grace could live in grace to live the life that pleases God. And then there is a the pathway of Cain, which refuses to do that which is right. Refuses to humble himself before God and refuses to accept the sacrifice God provided by which he may may be made right. People who choose this pathway will be justified in their own way. They will choose their own path. Thus their natural bent towards sin will become stronger and stronger and like Cain they will fall deeper into it and it will control them. Thus although our natural bent is toward rebellion and evil we can still, through what God has provided, be accepted and made right with him. We can choose the way of Abel. But because of the state we're born in with the nature that is hostile to God and bent toward evil, most people will choose the way of Cain and refuse God. However, between the time of the fall and the time of the flood, there were still people who found favor with God who chose the righteous path of Abel. And sort of the, the one example we have is, is that of Enoch, who, who the Bible says, he walked in close fellowship with God before the Lord took him away, Genesis 5.28. So Enoch was a man who chose the path of Abel, who was accepted by God and counted as his. And we know that there would have been others as well. But from between the time of the fall to the time of the flood, these righteous people who found favor with God, these who chose the path of Abel, became fewer and fewer and fewer. And the wickedness of man became greater and greater and greater until we come to this this pivotal point in Genesis. Where it says in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And it goes on in verses 6. It says, So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It grieved his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing. All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground... And even the birds in the sky, I am sorry I ever made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor with the Lord. Okay, so we come to this climatic point where sin is so prevalent and strong, you know, at proportions we haven't even seen yet in our society. It's so bad that God is grieved he ever made, made man. And thus he declares his judgment on the earth and that he'll destroy every living thing. However, it's important to note at this point that God could not destroy humanity completely. This is because he'd given a promise right after the fall that he would reverse the effects of the fall. This is Genesis 3.15, where it says, And I'll cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Thus, because God had not yet sent this promised one, this Messiah through whom the effects of the fall could be reversed, through whom we could be made right and alive to God again in the fullest sense, because this hadn't happened yet, because God hadn't sent him, he could not completely wipe out humanity. Thus, he kept his righteous remnant, it was Noah and his family. Noah, the one man who had chosen the right path of the righteous path of Abel, who belonged to God and was His possession. He kept Noah through the through His judgment, and He would repopulate the earth through him. Okay, so so we come to this point where it's such that the wickedness of men became greater and greater, and those who found favor with God became fewer and fewer until inevitably God sent His judgment on the earth. But it's here, though, that we come to our next pivotal point. What I believe is one of the most pivotal points in history, when Noah and his family come out of the ark, and the reason why it's so pivotal is because it's this moment in time that everyone left, everyone alive was right with God. So go to Genesis 8 from verses 18 to 21. Genesis 8 from verses 18 to 21. We read. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat, and all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. All right. They stop just there. So the Lord accepted their sacrifice, which, remember, were only accepted by God inasmuch as he accepts the sacrifice offered on our behalf. Thus, this is a sign that they found favor with God and were accepted as his possession, as his people. Okay, so we have this situation again where the wickedness of man becomes greater and greater until God's judgment comes. But after God's judgment is passed, all who are left... Are those who are accepted by God belong to God. Those who sacrifice, God accepts. And now I want us to just think for a minute because this will mirror our own lives. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, "As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be." Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven. As the days before the Lord's return get closer and closer, the number of true believers on the earth come fewer and fewer, and the extent of wickedness will become greater and greater and more explicit and more brazen. So whether it be through apostasy, persecution, martyrdom, or the rapture, the number of true believers on the earth is going to become fewer and fewer. And when man's sinfulness and wickedness hits its peak, and when all the salt of the earth has left then God's judgment will fall on the earth and he'll judge man's wickedness. But after the judgment, all who remain are those who are accepted by God, who have the white robes of righteousness because they have the sacrifice, they have a sacrifice that God has accepted. And I think this is what we must remember more and more, because the wickedness will increase and take more and more dominance through the world which will lead to eventually, eventual alienation and persecution, and even in the, in the context of the tribulation, martyrdom. Even though this is the case, the greater reality is what comes after God's judgment is past. The eternity with God. That which takes place on earth is temporal, but what comes afterwards is a greater reality because it's eternal, it lasts forever. So anyway... That's all to say that this, this point in time where Noah and his family come out of the ark is so pivotal because it's a prefiguring picture of that which is to come, of that time. And it's so pivotal because it's this, this really one moment in time where all the people on earth find favour with God and are accepted by God, are in this, this category, if you like, of those who have chosen the righteous path of Abel. But remember a key verse in Exodus 19. God calls Israel out of Egypt to be his own special possession from among the people of the earth. And remember this term among presupposes that all the other nations are not God's possession. None of these other nations find favour with God. So we go from this point right after the flood where all the people on earth belong to God, find favour with God, to this point where none of the nations... On earth, find favour with God. Okay, so what exactly happened? What what went wrong? Well, God gives us a hint. Um, God gives us a hint in Genesis eight verse twenty one, in the second half of this verse. It says, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice, and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Okay, so even though through his judgment God had purged the wickedness that had tainted humanity from the earth, the fundamental sin nature inside man that bent him towards this wickedness had not yet been changed. In other words, the promise in Genesis 3.15, who would by his work reverse the effects of the fall... Had not yet come. Thus sin crept into the world again and again began began to dominate humanity. We know Noah himself fell into sin and his son fell into great sin. And thus essentially humanity started where it left off, falling deeper and deeper into sin, and the number of righteous becoming fewer and fewer. As time went on and humanity got further and further from Noah, their righteous ancestor, and from the covenant God made with him, they again fell into deeper and deeper sin, choosing the way of Cain, and fewer and fewer people choosing the righteous path of Abel. But this all led to a place. In the same way that before the wickedness of man had led to the flood, this time the wickedness of man led to Babel, or Babylon. Babylon. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 11. And it's critical to understand what happened at the Tower of Babel in order to to understand God's covenant with Israel or this particular covenant promise of being his possession and in order to understand the concept of Israel itself. Okay, so so we'll read Genesis 11 from verses 1 to 4. Um, It says... And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Okay, so what's the problem here? Well, first, it says all the people of the earth were of one language and of one speech. Okay, so all the people speak the same language. Then it says, as they journeyed from the east. Okay, so this shows us that we have a situation where all the people on earth speak the same language and are all sticking together and are all moving as one in the same direction. So to understand what's really wrong here, we must realize that after the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, God made a covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, in which contained the basic laws of God which apply to all humanity. And one of the laws, it's actually reiterated, it's the first one and the last one, I believe, it's a reiteration of this original, com- this original command that God gave to Adam and Eve that we already looked at in Genesis one twenty-eight. This command was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, to fill the earth. Thus human beings were to multiply and spread out to repopulate the earth. Here, however, in Genesis 11, we we have this situation where all humanity, all the people on the earth are sticking together, refusing to spread around the world. And therefore, this is an act of direct defiance against God. We see this even more clearly in verse 4 where it says, Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Thus the whole point of the city and this tower was an act of conscience def- conscious defiance against God and his law. It was to keep them from being scattered across the earth as God would have had them to be. The people also said, let us make us a name, or let us make a name for ourselves. This was the heart of the apostasy, or the people's defiance against God. The significance of naming something is this, that when you give something a name, you're signifying your dominion over that thing. In the beginning, God named Adam, but he told Adam to name the animals. This is because, this is because again, God told humanity, this is again the same commandment, to fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. God made humanity to reign over the earth and govern it, to have dominion over it, to be stewards of God's creation. Thus, God gave man the job of naming the animals as a means of signifying this dominion or governance over them. But God himself, however named man, God gave Adam his name. This signifies God's dominion or authority over man, and therefore man's accountability to God God, being creator, sets the moral laws and boundaries for the universe, and we, being creation, are subject to these laws. Isaiah 45, 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. He is above us, and we are subject to Him. We cannot just do anything with our lives, because He has set objective moral laws that distinguish right from wrong, good from evil, and we cannot decide these things for ourselves. Thus, when these people chose to make a name for themselves, it was a complete refusal of God's authority in their lives or to any high authority at all. In perfect unity, they would define their own future. No one would be above them, and thus they would be held accountable to no one. They would define what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. It was really a reiteration of the servant's lie in the beginning, you will be as God's. was a deification of man and a refusal of any, any authority above themselves. So in short, it was a defiant choosing of their own path and a defiant rejection of God's path. And this is a climatic point known as the great apostasy, where all of humanity in perfect unity and sound mind rejects God and defects from his way to go their own way. And we know what happens next. God judges God judges them by giving them different languages and scatters them around the world in this way. And so we, we learn another lesson here that ultimately God's purpose God's purposes will prevail, but either through obedience or judgment. The people could have could have been could have um, separated in obedience to God's law but ultimately God scattered them as a means of judgment in the end so anyway God split all the people up into different nations and scattered them around the world but here's the thing and this is the important part is that each of these nations they're all scattered and separated from each other but they were still equal and united and their apostasy and their rejection of God. So we go from a point in time after the ark came to rest, where all the people on earth belong to God, are accepted by him because they have chosen the righteous path of Abel, to this point, where all the people on earth have defected and rejected God, and have chosen the path of Cain. So we come to this point and we think, what, what is God going to do now? Does he again pick one righteous, destroy everyone else, and start again through him? No, God promised he would not judge the world in this way again. Genesis 8.21 says, I will never again destroy all living things. No, this time, instead of God destroying all the nations for their sin and rejection, he would rather choose for himself a people from amongst these nations. And this is the context of Israel and the covenant God made with them. You will be my special possession from among the people of the earth. Exodus 19 verses 5. So all had rejected and rebelled, but God in his love and mercy and grace would choose a remnant for himself from amongst the nations. He would not just let let the people go and abandon them as they deserved, but he would choose for himself a people from among them. Thus, though all humanity had rejected God, he would still have a people for himself from among them. This is why we go from the rejection and rebellion of chapter 11 to the call of Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant of chapter 12. Because this is the start of God calling out for himself a people from among these pagan nations that had soundly rejected him. So look at Genesis 12 from verses 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so this last promise, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, is critical because it shows us that the people of God, those who are accepted by him and counted as his possession, actually go beyond the people of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham. It shows that there will be a people kept from a God, a people who are his possession from among all the nations, the same ones who defiantly rejected him and went their own way. We see this in Matthew 24, 24, verse 14, which says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. But we see it even more clearly in Revelation chapter 7, from verses 9 to 10, which reads, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great for me to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a mighty voice, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So we see that God will have a a people for himself from among all the nations of the earth. Thus we can start to see the purpose of Israel. We can start to see a picture here. They are God's initial remnant, whom God uses to bring a remnant from the rest of the nations. God shows this to Abraham when he reiterates his covenant with him in Genesis 17 from verses 3 to 6. It says, At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. So Abraham is the father of much more than Israel and the Jewish people, for he symbolizes the first one to be set apart for God by faith, and therefore is the father of everyone else who has been set apart for God by faith. Galatians 3.29 says, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Okay, so through Abraham all the all the families of the earth will be blessed because it is through Abraham that the promised Messiah who will reverse the effects of the fall will come. Remember it says, and now that you belong to Christ. And so the picture of, of sort of what Israel is and their purpose and these covenant promises becomes even more clear. We see that all the nations of the earth rejected God, but God chooses a nation from among these other nations to be his possession. And through this nation, he will send his Messiah, his anointed one. And it is through this anointed one and the work he does to provide a way of making humanity right with God that a remnant from all the other nations that rejected God will be redeemed and brought back as his people. Okay, so turn to Titus 2:11 to 14. This will be our last last passage for today. It says Titus 2:11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Okay, so we see ultimately through all this that there are really only two types of people on the earth. Those who belong to God, those who are his possession, and those who do not. Amidst all the different religions and worldviews, people really only fit into these two categories. But within this category of people who belong to God, there are actually two categories within this. There are those of us who are the the remnant of the nations, Gentiles, who, though we defiantly rejected God, God nevertheless, being rich in mercy, provided this way through the Lord Jesus, that we might become His possession, that we might be part of the people He has purified for Himself, and we know that we've been brought as God's possession in the fullest sense, having our sins completely wiped away and forgiven. And having our fellowship with God completely restored, so much so that we're called the children of God and co with Christ of God's glory. But then there's the other the other type of people that belong to God, which is Israel. Who though they persist in their idolatry and apostasy, and though most of them, most of the Jewish people not individually saved, they're still God's people on account of the everlasting covenant God made with them made with Abraham and made with them. And one day we know Israel will become God's special possession in the fullest sense, in the same sense we are, because they will come to trust the same Saviour we do, their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, Romans 11, verses 26. The remnant of Israel will be saved through the fire of the tribulation, And will finally be God's special possession in the fullest sense because they will have the hearts to wholly dedicate themselves unto God and truly seek to obey him. This is when they'll finally be able to keep the covenants God made with them. And they will then truly be God's special possession because they will be as God would have them to be. But Israel, however, was to be more than just God's possession, were also to be His kingdom of priests. This was the second covenant promise God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. The high priest of Israel was the mediator between the people of Israel and God, and he came before God as a, representat- a representative of the people of Israel. This means that when the high priest appeared before God, it was as if all Israel had appeared before God because he represented them. He represented the people of Israel. Thus, Israel being a kingdom of priests, it means there's a lot about what it means to be a kingdom of priests, but part of it was that they were to be a mediatory nation who represented the ways and truth of God to the world around. They were to be a shining light who displayed the truth of God and his character in his ways, they were to represent God to the world. And we know this is the same with us. Like Israel, we're to be more than just God's possession. We're to be his witnesses whose lives reflect his truth and character and who are willing to share his gospel with the world around us. But the final covenant promise God gave Israel is that they will be his holy nation, They will be the nation that he purifies and sanctifies, sets apart for true worship. And the nation that he lives among, the nation whom he dwells. This was God's greatest promise to Israel, that he would dwell among them. And and likewise, this is the greatest thing we have. That God is with us, that he dwells among us, and that ultimately that he lives in us. The the first verse of the 23rd Psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What this means is, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. So no matter what we go through, the, the, the fact that God's with us is the greatest promise we have, the greatest thing we have, and it's enough. It's enough that we know him and that we have this blessed assurance of salvation in him. So anyway, these are the three covenant promises that God made to Israel on Mount Sinai. You will be my own special possession from among all the peoples of the earth. You will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. But these promises were conditioned on this, if you will obey me and keep my covenant. So in light of that, what I'm wanting to do is sort of make this a two-part Um, Sermon. Next time I preach, I want to look at the nature of this covenant, um, the nature of God's law, and see what it was able to accomplish, where it fell short, what it wasn't able to accomplish, and ultimately what its purpose was. um, Anyway, let's just bow in prayer. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this day. I, I thank you for this message. I thank you for... For all that I've been able to learn from it, Lord. And I just pray that you will um, that we, you will help us to grow in your love for your word, Lord. You will help us to gain more and more from it. And that you will help us to, everyone here to, to understand and grasp what you would have them to from this message, I pray. I pray you be with us as we go forward into this week um, and the rest of this day, I pray.